Luke 13, beginning in verse 22, God's word says, Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day. I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken. I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed it's he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may that be the cry of our hearts. Blessed is the one who comes in your name. That we are blessed when we're with you. Lord, would you speak to us now in your word? Would you cause the dry bones to come to life? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Tom Rainer writes, do you know the name Harry Truman? Let me be clear, do you know the name Harry Randall Truman? No, he was not the former president. He was a homeowner at the foot of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. In 1980, the volcanic mountain was showing signs of a major eruption. Indeed, one expert declared that the chance of a major eruption was virtually 100%. Truman was living in the most likely path of the volcanic flow. Government officials implored him to leave. Friends told him that the failure to move was tantamount to suicide. Family members begged him to leave lest he die. On May 18, 1980, the massive eruption took place. The lava flowed right on the projected path of Truman's home. On May 18, 1980, Harry Randall Truman died. Harry Truman died, not because he didn't have enough information, not because he didn't have people in charge, even family, even friends who said, you need to go. This is dangerous. The path that you're on is for destruction. No, he died because he would not change and move. And that story really sets the scene for us for what is going on here in Luke 13 and verses 22 through 35. Jesus has been warning the people that they need to change their path. They need to forsake their path and follow him. 
And yet, though, while many enjoy hearing him, the religious leaders have not. They've rejected him. And this leads a man to ask, well, are only a few going to be saved? And we'll see that the issue is similar to that of Harry Truman. The issue is not necessarily how many God wants saved, but how many will respond to the call of being saved through Jesus. And so Jesus weeps and longs for them to come, but they refuse. And so as we look at this, first we'll see in verses 22 through 24 that Jesus must be responded to with repentance. Then in verses 25 through 30, that Jesus must be responded to before it's too late. Third, in verses 31 through 33, Jesus is undeterred in his mission. And then fourth and lastly, Jesus, the weeping prophet in verses 34 through 35. But we begin in verse 22 because Jesus is continuing on his mission as he's headed toward Jerusalem and he's teaching people. And we say continuing on his mission because before, as he's taught through the towns, one of the towns tried to get Jesus to stay. I mean, just imagine, here comes this healer, this teacher, this demon outcaster, and they, whoa, we don't want you to leave our town. We want you to stay here. And yet in Luke 4, 43, Jesus replied, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For this purpose, I was sent. And so Jesus is saying, look, I can't stay in one town. I have to go town to town. And that's what he's doing. But not only down the town, he's not just randomly going. He has a course, a course that's focused toward Jerusalem. We saw this in Luke 9, 51, because it said, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And even as we'll see today, Jesus knew that his mission, his purpose, would only be achieved by him being rejected and then crucified in Jerusalem. And yet, though he knew that was his plan, the plan of his father, he did not deter from it. And so as go, he's going along, this man calls out, well, Jesus, are only a few going to be saved? Now, we have to remember the context of where this is to understand fully what's being said. Because back in chapter 12, verses 54 through 56, Jesus had rebuked them. Because look, you can feel the breeze. You can see the cloud and know what weather's coming. But you can't see everything Scripture said about the Messiah and see me and respond. You're better at understanding the weather than what's right in front of your face. And then he told them in chapter 12, 57 through 59, look, you need to make right with the judge, with God, before it's too late. Well, they then responded to this by saying, well, what about Pilate? They tried to get the focus off themselves and onto those horrible people. And Jesus tells them, no, no, unless you repent, you will also perish eternally. And then Jesus warned them. He said, look, you're like a tree that was planted and it never bare fruit. And yet, I'm going to give it one more year as I aerate the soil, as I fertilize it for fruit to come. But if it doesn't come by that time, you will be chopped down. And then Jesus aerated and fertilized the soil, so to speak, in what we looked at last week when he healed another woman. Another evidence that the Messiah, the Son of God, has come. And yet, rather than responding with joy, the religious leaders got angry because Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And so Jesus is warning them and continuing to warn them. And so all of this is making 
one of them go, well, hold on, you keep giving these warnings. So are you saying that many of the Jews, the Jews are not going to be saved? Well, this would be a surprise because they thought, well, almost every Jew is going to be saved. Yeah, sure, there's some really horrible ones who've rejected God's word and rejected the tabernacle and all of these things. But, I mean, we're Jews. We're going to be saved. And Jesus' message seems to be saying something else. Well, Jesus then does, in verse 24, what he often does. When he's given a direct theoretical question, he answers with a direct response. We saw this in chapter 13, where we already mentioned, when they try to move from them needing to repent to Pilate, he doesn't go off and pontificate about how horrible Pilate is. He says, well, unless you repent, you will also perish. Or in chapter 12, when a man comes and says, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. He didn't then go into how you should settle arbitration and inheritance disputes. He uses that as a general warning for watch out for greed. And so here, Jesus doesn't directly answer the question of how many will be saved. Rather, he basically says, just make sure you're in the group that is saved, whether large or small. In fact, you need to strive, he says, to enter the narrow door. The word striving comes from the Greek word agonizomai. And you can hear in that word agonize, where we get our word agonize, where you're intensely straining, putting forth effort towards something. But that makes us wonder, well, did Jesus misspeak? Isn't salvation free? Is this something we need to be striving for and working for? Well, yes, Jesus does clearly teach salvation is free. But while it is completely free, the evidence that we have it is we continue to strive after Christ, to strive hard after God. We know the Roman 7 battle in our heart that leads us to wander from God. And we have to fight to keep having faith in and obeying God. That's why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 4.10, For to this end we toil and strive. Same word, strive. Same Greek word too. He then says, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So Paul puts all those ideas together. Yes, we're striving, but why? Because we have hope in God. Because we have been given salvation through faith. That's why we strive. Also, realizing what this narrow door is helps us understand more what Jesus is saying. You think about this image of a door. Basically, a door is just an entrance into another location. And this location is eternal dwelling with God. And Jesus is telling them the narrow door is the right response to him of repentance of your sins. And to understand we have repentance, we need to realize what sin is. Sin is not just the bad things we do. That is true, but sin begins first as the power inside of us that says, I am in charge. That says, or maybe if we're honest, growls through gritted teeth, no one will tell me what to do. It's the power that says, I'm going to run my life, and no one or nothing will. And yet repentance is when we submit our life to God and said, God will tell me what to do. I am submitting my life to you, God. You have control of my life. He has the rule and reign. However, even as believers, we struggle and we keep wanting to pull those reins back. Well, yes, 
I know where to forgive, but I really want to hold a grudge against that person for this one. Yes, it's better to serve, but not at this moment right now. And we keep wanting to say, I want control in this situation. And yet Jesus says, no, you must continually strive to follow me in repentance. Repenting of our unforgiving hearts in our self-serving ways. And if we're honest, this is very hard. That's why they use language like striving, or the New Testament calls it a battle in the language of warfare. And if the hope of us winning this battle was us, we would have no hope. But Christ has won the victory. That's why Paul said we have our hope in Christ and we believe in him, and therefore we strive. His victory causes us to go forth in striving. However, the Jews assumed they were good just because of the fact they were Jews. Turn over to Luke chapter 5, verses 30 through 32, because we've seen this before. They viewed themselves as righteous in all that they do, and those people out there, those Gentiles, those sinners, aren't even welcome. And repentance is a narrow door that they have a hard time walking through. In Luke 5, 30 through 32, it says, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus welcomes repentant sinners, but the religious leaders are angry and shocked. They are too good to be associated with scum like that. And so Jesus is saying that the door to repentance, to him through repentance, is open to anyone who admits their sin. But that door is too narrow for the Pharisees to enter. You probably have had narrow entrances in your life. One summer, my family encountered one. We were traveling and we came to Jewel Cave. We purposely arrived at Jewel Cave National Park. Jewel Cave is really fascinating. It has the third longest cave in the entire world. And various tours will take you down there and through the caves, but the farthest reaching and deepest exploration is called their Wild Caving Tour. On their website, they describe it as a real caving adventure in which you scramble, chimney between cave walls, use a rope assist to climb a nearly vertical wall, and belly crawl through tight passages. Participants are required to pass through an eight and a half inch by 24 inch concrete block crawl space before beginning the tour. And outside of the ranger station, they have this eight and a half inch, which is about from the tip of my fingers to about here, eight and a half inch by 24 inch wide concrete block. So you can even test, can I crawl through beforehand? Because if you can't, they won't let you go on the tour because one of the crawl spaces is that tight. And I was going to take the tour. I really wanted to, but the kids. I couldn't do it because of the kids. Okay, I never would have made it. I would have been in the fetal position crying. They'd be pulling me out. Ah, it's too narrow. I can't handle this. Some places are too narrow for us, and we freeze up. We don't want to do it. Well, the Pharisees, and even today, some people look at the entrance of repentance. And they go, I can't do it. I cannot submit my life to God. I want control of my life. That's too narrow, and I won't. And Jesus says, look out, there's a narrow door. You have to come to me through this. There's no other way. You have to humble your pride and realize I'm offering you life. 
Yes, it's hard, but there is life in me. And Jesus warns that many won't do that. And Jesus' message ran against the grain of popular thinking in his day, and it runs against the grain of popular thinking today as well. You know, people today like to say, well, there's many paths to God. I mean, this is so narrow to say this is the only way, the only door. Come on, there has to be many options. You know, this is viewed as arrogant, intolerant, and even oppressive to say that there's only one way, only a narrow door to God. We're told that no view can really understand all truth. Really, it's just one perspective on the truth. And you maybe have heard this illustration. Really, what the truth is, is it's like six blind men. Six blind men, they come to an elephant, and they all approach it from different angles. And one approaches the truth about the world and God, and he grabs the ear and he goes, oh, I know what it is. God and truth is like a fan, a big fan flowing. And another one goes, no, 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 because he's at the end of the elephant. He grabs the tail and he goes, no, no. Truth and God, it's like a snake. I can feel it. And another one's like, no, he grabs the leg. He's like, this is like a tree. And so we're told, well, look, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, whatever, they're all just feeling on different aspects of the elephant of truth. And really what we need to do is have the humility, so we're told, to realize that, yes, we are seeing some true things, but we don't have the whole perspective. Well, there's one significant problem with that analogy and mindset, and that is, though it presents itself very humble, because look, we all have to realize we can only feel one part. Did you notice the person who's telling you that story says, but I actually can see the whole thing myself. They're telling you, you can only see one part, but I see the whole elephant. And I know that you can only see one part. So what presents itself as humble is actually quite arrogant and proud because it's saying, I see the totality while you only see a portion. And beyond that, there's a slight problem if, to continue the analogy, the elephant speaks and says, no, I'm an elephant. If you continue to touch the leg and say, this is a tree, and the elephant says, I'm not a tree, I'm an elephant, and you go, no, 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 I don't care what he says, he's an elephant, he's a tree. Well, you're no longer being humble, you're being stubbornly rebellious, unwilling to submit to the revelation of another. And if this morning all we're doing here is sharing Pastor Jeremy's insights into religion, or later talking about what you think about who God is, and how you feel about how you interact with the divine, well then we should say that, yeah, we're no better than other blind men. But God has spoken in Jesus Christ. He has said, this is who I am. And then to say, well, no, 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 that's not right, is not humility, that's arrogance. You know, last night some of us went to the songers, they invited us over, and if Joseph had sent out a message saying, there's construction on the way, you shouldn't come down this road, you should come this other path. And I then told you and go, well, you arrogant pastor, how can you tell me how to get to Joseph's house? And I said, well, actually, I'm not telling you. Joseph told me. He lives there. He knows how to get there. And they go, no, no, there's many ways to Joseph's house. I know. He go, no, actually, he told me. Though all those are shut down. There's construction. There's one way tonight that you can get there. Well, you would only be foolishly proud to continue and to insist, I know better. The one who wants you to get there has said, this is the way. 
I want you to know the way, but there's only one way. And Jesus is saying that. But he's not only saying that, though. He also warns that it will be permanently shut. We see that in verses 25 through 30. The second, Jesus tells them he must be responded to before it's too late. And he uses this illustration of a sleeping house owner. The homeowner's gone to sleep, and people come, let us in. And Jesus' analogy doesn't last very long, because clearly he's the homeowner, because these people are saying, look, let us in. But the homeowner says, I don't know you. And they reply, but we ate and drank with you. You taught us in our streets. You know who we are. And he replies, no, depart from me. I don't know who you are. You are all workers of unrighteousness. Again, think about the person who asked this question. He said, are, basically, are all Jews, are only a few going to be saved? And Jesus is now saying, many of you are workers of unrighteousness. This would be shocking. You know, Jesus is saying, look, it's not enough merely to be around me. It's not enough really to just want to hear my teaching or be familiar with who I am. To make it modern to today, it's not enough to just know Bible verses, to go to church events, serve Jesus. These horrible words that Jesus says will one day be said to people who say, but we organize church fellowships. We listen to Christian podcasts. We went to church. And yet Jesus warns, depart. I do not know where you come from. And so the proper response is not to be acquainted or familiar with Jesus. The proper response is bowing before him, submitting your whole life to him repenting of sin and trusting in him. And Jesus warns that the time to do that will end. My aunt loves to tell the story of when she and my uncle were at a university and he was working on his graduate degree. And as would often happen, he'd be up at the university studying and then him and some of the other graduate students would want to take a break and they'd start playing cards or games or whatever. And this night, they went a little bit long. And he was coming home late. So he shows up at the door, and, uh-oh, the front door to the house is locked. So he goes over to the window and, Marybeth, let me in. It's John. Nope. Couldn't be my John. He was supposed to be here an hour ago. It's not funny, Marybeth, let me in. Nope. I better call the police. I haven't heard from John. He was supposed to be here an hour ago. I'm going to go call him right now. Marybeth, seriously, open it up. Let me in. Well, with a lot of begging and pleading, my uncle eventually got in and barely lived to this day to hear the story. But nonetheless, Jesus is saying the opposite. There's not going to be enough begging and pleading of, well, I just forgot. Well, you know, I meant to call, but I, I meant to respond, but can I beg and plead? Jesus says, no. At one point, it'll be too late. You have now to respond. You need to respond now. And Jesus uses this horrible language, saying, because if they don't respond, they're going to be like Harry Truman. Oh, I don't, I don't need to. I'm fine. And then they're destroyed. And then they will be watching Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob rejoicing with God. And they'll be outside, and they'll be weeping, gnashing of teeth. This horrible emotion that's overcome that they have missed their chance. The physical reaction of, we have missed, and we're now being punished. Even worse, in contrast, we're told in verse 29 that Gentiles are going to come. 
Because people are going to come from east and west, north and south. Many will be at this banquet, but they will not. That is, unless they respond with faith and repentance. Jesus is telling them there's still time. The door is open. Respond now, and you can be there with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, with all those who come from east and west. But if they don't, Jesus says, verse 30, some who are first will be last, and some who are last will be first. You know, the Jews are first in the promises of God. They're first in the blessings, and yet they don't respond. They'll be made last. Now he says some because the disciples were all Jewish, and well, as you go through Acts, you see many respond in faith who are of Israelite ethnicity. And yet the sad reality is many won't. And so Jesus is warning them that many will be last. And so Jesus' words cause us to ask, are we merely close to God's people and God's things, or have we responded? You know, is there evidence of ongoing faith and repentance in our life? Not just something I did in the past, but is there evidence today of knowing him? Well, Jesus goes on because they're going to come some Pharisees to warn him. And yet Jesus, we'll see in 31 through 33, is undeterred in his mission. Verse 31, it says, And Jesus went down to Capernaum. I'm sorry, I'm still in chapter 4. In Luke 13, 31, we see that Jesus says, At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, we're not given much context. So were the Pharisees saying this out of genuine concern? Was this a Pharisee like Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night and who really cared about Jesus and is warning him? Or is this Pharisees who, like we often see, hate Jesus and are trying to undermine his mission and trying to make him look like a coward and flee? Well, we're not told, so we can't speculate. But we do know that it's not an idle threat that Herod wants to kill you. He had killed John the Baptist, and so Jesus would know this is not a light warning. This is not a fake situation. And yet notice Jesus' response. He replies in verse 32, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Jesus doesn't blink in the face of death. He even calls Herod a fox, meaning a conniving destroyer. And as well, he's thus not going to stop the mission that God gave to Jesus. He's going to continue to cast out demons. He's going to continue to heal people because his mission won't be done until the third day. Now we know that's metaphorical language because Jesus has many more days before he dies. He's referring to his resurrection. Now, at that time, many of Jesus' hearers would not have understood, but later, as they reflect, they would realize all that Jesus meant by that statement. And so Jesus here is trusting in God's plan. Though threats, those serious warnings come, he knows God has a plan for me in Jerusalem. So Herod cannot stop me before that. But not only that, though, he's not going to flee well, verse 33, Jesus also says he's not going to stay there. He must go on today and tomorrow and the day after because he's going for Jerusalem. And he must do this because it's impossible for a prophet to die anywhere but Jerusalem. I don't know if you ever watch TV 
specials. They're actually not very special. But TV specials trying to tell us of the real and historical Jesus. And what they're trying to say is, well, look, there's the real historical Jesus, and then there's the Jesus of faith. And the real historical Jesus is just a person. Mary, maybe he married. Maybe he was crucified. Definitely didn't rise from the dead. Jesus of faith, that's the kind of stuff you find in the Bible. And the Jesus of faith, he didn't say all these things. And yet, over and over, Jesus does say the things that people deny that he said. You notice the implication of what Jesus just said. It is impossible for a prophet to die outside of Jerusalem. Jesus claimed that he was a prophet of God. He never claimed just to be a mere teacher. You know, it's a false distinction, the Jesus of history or the Jesus of faith. The Jesus of faith is the one who actually lived in history. And the words we have are the words he spoke. It is historically true. And what person can say not only that they're going to die, we can all do that, but to say the location and the manner of their death. And Jesus shows himself over and over to be a prophet. And we saw that even back in Luke chapter 7. If you flip there, there's a story of a Pharisee who invites Jesus over to his home. And there in Luke 7, verse 39, the man is shocked because this woman has come, this sinful woman, and she's weeping at Jesus' feet. And she's weeping out of joy that God would welcome her through Christ. And all the Pharisee can think of is, well, if this man were a prophet, he would know what type of woman this is. But notice what Jesus says after that. Verse 41, he says to this man, Simon the Pharisee, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water from my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You know, here we see what the narrow door is. What is needed to be welcomed by Jesus? to fall before him, to admit I'm a sinner and I'm in need. And that's the one thing that Simon the Pharisee and many today will not do. The narrow door has nothing to do with whether you're rich or you're poor. The narrow door has nothing to do with what race you are, what gender you are. The narrow door is that of repentance. Will you humble yourself before God? And thus there's great news because the amount or the depth or the length or the continuance of your sin does not keep you from the narrow door. The only thing that keeps you is your pride. We also see Jesus again showing he's a prophet because notice he could read what Simon the Pharisee was thinking and he knew what type of woman this was. He answered Simon's question. If this man knew this, who this woman was, he would show he's a prophet. And he does show that. 
any know, Simon's thought. And so Jesus here, back in Luke 13, is showing this confidence that he can go to the cross because he is a prophet and he must die there. And he has this confidence in his Father and his sovereignty. And so Jesus goes, placing his life in his Father's hands. But lastly, we see that Jesus is the weeping prophet, verses 34 and 35. Because Jesus laments over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Language that echoes King David when he cries out over Absalom. Or language that echoes what Jesus already said to Martha. Martha, Martha. Showing deep compassion and concern. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because it stands for the nation. And he's wanted. He's wanted them to come home. And yet when he sent messengers telling them to come home, what do they do? They just stone the messengers. When they send prophets, they just kill them. Jesus, though, like a hen, wanted to gather his chicks under his wing or her wing. This is a familiar biblical metaphor. Psalm 36, 7 says, How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. And so Jesus reveals God's compassion and his longing heart for people to be saved. Now, it's a mystery. How does God's sovereignty and human freedom interact? However, we see here that God's sovereignty, his control overall, in no ways minimizes his deep heart, his deep concern for people. You know, we see this deep longing and concern that people would come back to him. God's desire for his people could not be mistaken. The reason they don't come is not his unwillingness, but their unwillingness. No one will go to hell who really wanted to be with God. God desires all to come to repentance. But since they didn't heed the prophets and don't heed Jesus, he says in verse 35, Behold, your house is forsaken. This is alluding to a prophecy Jeremiah said that then led to the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. and going to lead to the destruction of Jerusalem again in 70 A.D. Jesus longed for their blessing, but he's not going to bless them while they continue to turn their back to him. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, look, the tree I warned about that's unfruitful, it's going to be chopped down. It'll be chopped down until they say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And we don't have time to look at all this, but I think he's referring to what Paul talks about in Romans 11, how for a time the Gentiles are grafted in until the full number, and then the Jews are brought back. And then they will cry out as a people, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Thus, though Jesus predicts judgment, It is not with harsh anger, but compassionate tears. I knew a pastor who sometimes as he preached, he came across very angry and kind of harsh. And in talking to him, he conveyed that, well, it bothers me how little Christians in the U.S. take seriously the threats and the judgment of God. And while I think that was honorable that we should try and convey that, we have to also realize the full picture is not of an angry God, but also a God who weeps, who longs for people 
to come home. It's like a parent who disciplines their child, but the whole time they wish there was anything else. But they love their child, and so they discipline them, even in their own tears. As Francis Schaeffer said, if we preach judgment without tears, we don't have the spirit of Jesus. And so do we have this compassion for others? Honestly, too often I wonder if I have it at all. You know, what I pray about, what gets me annoyed, what upsets me has little to do with others, but a lot with how's my life going. You know, may God have mercy on me and on us. May we have this compassion that looks out and sees people destroying their lives now and eternally. And may we cry out, Oh, Wichita Falls, Wichita Falls. Won't you be gathered under God's wings? God longs to care for us and restore us to himself. Tim Keller uses the following fictional illustration that captures what Jesus says here. A great forest fire burned through a national forest. And after the rangers were going through hiking, kind of to determine and assess the damage. And as they were going, they found a bird that almost looked petrified in the heat and in the ashes. And it was so weird that the ranger kind of kicked it with its boot. And when the ranger kicked it, three little chicks came scurrying out. She had been willing to bring them under her wings to give her life so that they might have life. Tim Keller continues, Jesus wanted to gather his children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. Jesus did do this, and he was burned to a crisp. On the cross, you have God giving himself to love us. The only way that you love a guilty, broken person and really change them is that you have to do it substitutionarily. Jesus took our penalty upon himself and got what we deserved. Our sins, guilt, and brokenness fell upon him. He took it so that we could be forgiven. You know, the genuineness of someone's love for you is shown through their words, is shown through their emotions, but also in their actions. We often say words are cheap. Anyone can say, oh, I love you, oh, I care about you, but what about when you're in need? In our greatest need, Jesus didn't just say, I love you. He put us under his wings, so to speak. And took the punishment we deserve so that we could come out under the wings and live. Like Harry Truman, we can be warned by authorities. We can be warned by friends and family. Look, danger awaits. So flee now because there's life. So Jesus warns out of love, there's danger awaiting. God is holy, but he's also compassionate he's judging but he's also merciful and in that mercy he's given away a narrow way so repent now and trust in him submission to him is not the end of life but rather the beginning of the life that god made you to have let's pray oh lord would you bring new life We thank you for the new life you have brought and we ask that you would do more as we look out and see the decay in our own hearts, the decay in the world around us and the death. Would you cause the fruit of your spirit to be born here in Wichita Falls and beyond? It's in your son's name we pray.
Amen.